Hello, I'm Eddie Merckx. Welcome to the VeloCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the VeloCast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. Much-used TV commentators catch-up phrase, and if you're joining us late, could have been followed not with a summary of all the action you'd missed, but with don't worry about it, absolutely naff all has happened. And sadly, that amended trope could have been trotted out right up until the five kilometre or so mark, and that's actually been quite generous. Say 6 was once again raced at a speed that had it conclude 15 minutes after the slowest anticipated time in the roadbook, but when the race did get going... It was Dimension Data's Mark Cavendish who made clever use of a slight downward incline to the finish to take his third victory at this year's tour. Just as well the rumour of him going home two days ago proved unfounded. Well, as I was saying to Ashley, who I've just had a, a, a chat with, um, in absolutely crippling heat, actually, he sounded like he was melting down a microphone. Um, it's got to be said that I think Cav might have stayed on because his legs are great and he had a look at today's parkour. Uh, because... We saw today, I think, a really marked difference in sprinting styles. And it's easy to put Cav in the same uh, pigeonhole as the rest of them. Because if you're looking at your archetypal sprint trains, you know, uh, there were ones back in in the days of, of Rick Van Loy and that sort of thing. But you really start thinking about your cycles, don't you? That kind of thing with um, Mario Cipollini. But the you know the definitive one, the blueprint for the sprint train, is that group of guys who came together at HTC High Road and really redefined the genre. I mean, they were two sprints what US Postal were to mountain stages. You know, they they just deployed the team perfectly, and Cav was more often than not able to to leap gazelle like from Mark Renshaw's wheel to take the victory. But what he's always been is a clever, savvy, savvy sprinter. And today in his post-race interview, we got a great masterclass in, in sprint technique where he talked through the finale uh, with, with very you know, laser-like clarity about what had happened and seemed to relish the fact that he said, oh, it was like the old days, you know, you had to surf off a wheel, I was going for a gripe's wheel, but then, you know. And every minute he's thinking, every minute he's steering his body in the midst of that chaotic soup that is a Grand Tour sprint to be in exactly the right place to take a victory, came past Marcel Kittle's wheel and had, you know, that trademark second kick of his to to move away again for the victory and he relished the thing you know he was as high as a kite in the post-race interview you know buzzing with adrenaline buzzing with the, the thrill of a win still did a very classy interview actually I've been really impressed with Mark in, in this tour in his post-race interviews and then you contrast and compare that with Marcel Kittle who you know executed everything fine his form was good you know his, his cadence was good he, he was as aero as a big guy like him can get compared to you know the wee uh, the wee aero package that is is Mark Cavendish but, as, as his wife Peter calls yeah, him yeah let's not even go there as soon as I said that I thought oh, package it's not the right word but then you know he said in essence with these finishes, we can't even get a train to work properly. You know, why do the organisers do this to us? You know, we we, they, we just have to come off the wheel early, you know, echoing what we were talking about the other day where they're having to release their, their sprinters earlier. So the train is, you know, it's almost useless. So I think we got a really good contrast between a sprinter who thoroughly understands his craft 
which is Mark Cavendish, and a sprinter who is immensely talented, you know, can get it right on the day in a, a beautiful fashion. We saw him do, you know, up in that uphill finish the other day, but who just doesn't have the adaptability and quick thinking of Mark Cavendish. And I think Cav's as good as he's ever been. I think he's up against the best opposition he's ever had with Kittles, you know, the Griples who are in form, young folk like Cockard coming through who are, you know, hugely talented. But, you know, that leg speed from the track that Greg LeMond highlighted the other day, combined with the depth of experience and just the sheer understanding of what he's doing in a sprint has made him virtually unbeatable this year. I mean, he's been a delight to watch and actually for a very, very big change for us, he's been a delight to listen to and I'm really sorry for hogging the microphone for far too many minutes there, mate. Mm, sorry, what? I, yeah, I'd, I'd wandered off. I could hear I, the hoover in the background. I was going to say, I've, I've got the hoovering done, <laughs> the ironing done, the house has been completely redecorated. Every, I mean, it's looking spectacular now, as I'm sure yeah. you'll agree. Your son's I, graduating to graduating <laughs> Stars University next week. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I would say to to all that, other than to agree, is is to say is there is a certain amount of irony then if it's Marcel Kittel complaining about the fact that uh, he's been beaten by Mark Cavendish because Cavendish is is essentially using his intelligence and out and out cunning. Uh, in in sprinting when Kittle himself has come through that school of thinking which Mark Cavendish himself popularised or repopularised with with HTC. You know, the the sprint trains have reigned supreme, I think, largely because of HTC. It has been seen by every team that followed them up until now as absolutely the way to go. Mm-hmm. And for, for Kittle to be complaining that it's a Mark Cavendish that's beating him when the sprint trains aren't working, as I say, just I found slightly I- ironic. And I think it also plays in to that, that notion that, that I've certainly had, that the sprint trains just aren't as crucial as they used to be. Certainly not with these run-ins. I mean, these, these technical run-ins where we saw Cav you know, go really early today because there was a slight downhill. Um, we saw ethics disrupted by you know narrowings in the road, roundabouts, and and you know in the running, and we actually saw. Um, hang on, sorry. <clears throat> and we actually saw direct energy apparently try to go from about thirty kilometres out. So I think they're all trying to make the sprint train work, but the organisers are just mixing up the finale a wee bit. That oh, actually, what you're coming down to is a fight between the sprinters. You know, it's not as it used to be in the days of uh, HTC, a a fight between an entire sprint train versus another entire sprint train. You're actually seeing that old cliche, mano a mano, far more often. And for me, me, sorry. And for me, the sprints are all the better for it. These have been absolutely cracking sprints in the tour this year. No, I would I would totally agree with that. And I think it's one of the things that had put me off sprinter stages in the past is that it was a bit too organised, it was a bit too formulaic where you could you could tell what was going to happen before it actually happened and it would just be a question of which particular sprinter's train got it right or more right than, than the other one who was up against them. And I think this more chaotic finishing, I mean, a lot of riders are complaining about it being a bit more dangerous and... and Mark Cavendish himself said, my God, that was terrifying. But I think he was saying that more with glee than, than anything else. And, oh, totally. Or, or in, uh, complaining about, about the, the stage finish. And as I say, for, for me, it is a lot more entertaining. It is a lot more fascinating to watch riders trying to battle with each other as opposed to just the 
the almost machine-like precision of of a, of a sprinter's train. I also think, and I know it's a, a thing that uh, riders have been complaining about as well, is inside the, the three kilometer mark, which is is disrupting the ability of the sprint trains to form because there is only so much room on the road. Our GC teams, and, and I think most notable out of all of them, have been Team Sky coming to the front and and taking up a fair old space on 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 the road just to make sure their gc guys are are in a safe position and i think as i say that's contributing somewhat to that confusion in the end as well as the parkour um but i've got some more stuff to say on on the parkour in a minute i actually think i mean we've seen a lot of discussion about this what are the gc guys doing mixing it up in sprints and the answer is they're trying to keep out of trouble and finish reasonably high up so they don't lose much time in a finale so they're doing exactly the right thing and as far as i'm concerned the sprinters should shut up because if you look at some of these finishes we've seen small splits uh, you know on on the slight uphill finishes that might have a significant effect on the gc uh, when we get to the end of the race, we've seen riders, you know, in the wrong place and suffer because of it. Actually, finishing high up in a stage, you know, if you talk to your Bernardinos, your Greg Lemons, uh, it's part of the skill set of a GC rider, and getting his team drilled to enable them to do it is part of that skill set. So I'm all for the three kilometre, you know, mark, so that in that chaos, if you're taken down by a crash, you don't lose time because you're stuck behind something. You know, you haven't crashed yourself, you're just stuck behind a crash and it affects your ability to chase the people who are in front of you because there's an element of dumb luck about that. But the ability to look after yourself in a finale is part of the skills of a GC rider. And the sprint teams, you know, if they want the GC guys not to be there, just get rid of them. Just go faster. Make it so dangerous they actually want to back off. And I don't mean, you know, take it to the point where it's crashing. But, you know, they, they know how to take up the road. They know how to intimidate other teams. We see it every single day in sprinting. And if they didn't want the GC guys teams there, then they used their sprinting craft to get them out of the way. As it is, the problem is that everybody's so strong. There are more people than ever trying to take up space in the road. And if you're a GC guy, you want to be there as well. It's part of racing. So I, shut I just up think and get on with it. <laughs> yeah, I just think it is part of racing i think the gc guys have a right to to be there and to be contributing to yeah to to the stage and the race overall it's every day is a race they've got a right to be there because i mean other than your idea of, of kind of mad max style racing which i think i thought was where you were going with spikes you know, on the wheels that that kind of thing yeah for for the sprinters teams to get rid of the gc guys i mean the other alternative as i've said before is that this the um the gc guys you say well fine we'll sit on the bus and we'll see you at at the finish and and, because that's not a race that's not what we want to see everybody in the peloton has a right to be there it's up to the sprinters to sort it out if that's what they want to contest over and you might criticise it but think of the thrill that as fans we get watching you know a Chris Froome suddenly pop out of the bunch and you know that he's run you know jockeying for position into a difficult finale or an Alberto Contador, you know, suddenly pop from the bunch for the same reason. Watching these guys, you know, execute a plan to stay safe and to do well is part of the joy of watching the sport. It's just, it comes back to, it's just part of racing. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Another rider I want to, to mention is Dan McClay today. An mm. absolutely amazing sprint from him and it has to be noted his first Tour de France. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've talked about uh, that we're surprised that the, you know, the wildcard teams, the smaller teams aren't, you know, 
publicising themselves in these uh, relatively innocuous stages. I mean, hard finales, but we saw again, although for slightly different reasons, actually very conservative racing today. I'm not going to criticise the riders at all for today because it was brutally hot. Um, Ashley was telling me tales of, of riders really struggling at the finish because of the, the effects of the heat on their body. But for Dan McClay, for, for you know, for Fortunato Vital Concept, He's paid for his entire year's salary and the publicity he's got the team already. To see him pop up into third today was an absolute delight. You know, a, a super talent uh, and clearly capable of that, mixing it with the other guys when there isn't, you know, a clear plan and you're just having to live in your wits. A huge, huge talent. He's going to be snapped up by a bigger team, you know, almost immediately, I would think. And direct energy just sticking with wildcard teams did all of the work in pulling back the, the two-man break that we, we had today and a, a great deal of the work after they had, had been caught but were absolutely nowhere at the finish. I've got to steal one of our chum Norbs' friend's comments where he said they came off a bit half-cocked. Yeah, I think that's probably... Probably fairly accurate about, about the Direct Energy's performance today. It was very confusion. I mean, I, I can understand why they were wanting to do a lot of the work in bringing the break back, setting things up for Branco Carr, but then to continue to do the work and absolutely knacker themselves out so that they were as much use as a chocolate fire guard by the end was just head scratching for me. I tell you what, I think it is, and I genuinely believe this is I think they had a plan for the finale. But I, I mean, I, you know, I hate the gun and we mincer. Oh, stop with, it! With a passion, uh, I, you know, he's got a great, great racing brain. But I, you know, his nickname's Hollywood for a reason. I just hate him grandstanding. He's too strong a word, you know. He's, he's, a, he's a good rider, but I just don't like watching him. But I genuinely think we've seen on, and we saw it the other day as well when he went to join the the breakaway guy on that absolutely turgid stage three. I think you're getting to a stage where. Not doing something just as physically offensive to Tommy Vogler. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because he likes to attack, he likes to be in a break, he likes to use that racing brain, he likes to mix up the race. I think he gets to a point where he just goes, fuck it, I'm off. <laughs> That, I think in his defence today, the, there was a clear plan, mental as it was, there was a clear plan that, yes, he appeared at the front, but I think, I think, he think just after about that. about 15 kilometres before the team met him. To, <laughs> I, I, think, I think you're extending it beyond the realms of uh, credulity there. Uh, I think he was sent to the front and uh, the rest of the team were, were in close attendance to, to continue their work. <laughs> I, no, I genuinely think he goes, I'm, I'm having none of this. I'm a bicycle racer. I'm not here to do a training ride or go for a tour and you know suddenly the team go Tommy's at the front again we better get his wheel (laughs) that that is a neat segue to the next section but before I I get there I just want to say can we maybe start organising a search party for Cofidis because I'm starting to get worried maybe we should put their faces on the side of milk cartons in France that kind of thing I actually, I, I, I teed up and then deleted a tweet today without a word of a lie I'm not making this up where I, my tweet was, has anybody actually seen a Cofidis jersey so far in this Tour de France? And then about three of them appeared at the front. 
just before the finale and I had to delete my tweet because I would have looked like an idiot and I do that without any help from Twitter on, on many, many occasions. <laughs> so, Are you sure yeah. it just wasn't Katusha and you were getting confused? Well, no, no, some people got confused with that but there was the big yellow sunny bit on the front, on, the, on their back so I knew it was Kofidis um, and that is literally the first time I can remember seeing their jersey for the entire race. <laughs> uh, two more talking points, one from today's race, one from earlier on before the race started really uh, is more of a kind of wrap up of, of events from yesterday but to getting to, to the other talking point I feel for from today and it concerns a, a, a very arcane UCI regulation 2.6.008 for those that are interested maximum distance for a stage of a multi-day event is 240 kilometres now I think given what we've seen thus far in not only the Tour de France but in, in some other races but I think it's been brought into sharp release, uh, relief by uh, the stages we've seen thus far in the Tour it's time that that regulation is revisited and reduce that distance drastically. And I'm going to be really merciless here and say that it, and suggest it should be as much be as much as a third. Uh, I was going to suggest 200 actually, so we're not that far apart. Uh, I think it's absolutely vital that for the monuments, you know, for the the, the real old classics of the uh, cycling world, that we maintain that 250 up. Well, that's that's not you know that regulation no, is different from 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 the completely. regulation that applies to a single day race. Um, so I think there is a place for extreme distance because we've talked you know so often about the fact that once you get past two hundred and fifty kilometres, suddenly all bets are off if you're you're just basing it on a rider's talent and shorter races. You know, and it's taken arguably Petersagan until this year to get used to that extra distance because he's been super competitive up till two sixty two seventy. Um, you know, and and suddenly he's gone. So for the monuments, I think shortening them would be an absolute sin. And I'm saying this to put into context. You know, I would defend the the excessive length of the monuments, what some people would say excessive, until my last breath. I think there should not be a Grand Tour stage longer than 200 kilometres. And I think we've seen some of the best racing we've seen in recent years in stages that are between 140 and 160. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and someone on, on Twitter, and apologies, I, I've not made a, a note of, of who it was before we started recording. Someone on Twitter was saying that actually the parkour itself has been unimaginative thus far. Last the finales year, have been great, but the, the actual stages have been pretty turgid. Yeah, I mean, last year and the year before, we had some really fascinating and, and, and interesting entertaining racing it has to be said a lot of it coming from the weather which of course ESO can't control and the weather certainly played a huge factor today in it being so hot but that's nothing to do with ESO of course but in previous years we've seen Christian Prudhomme reach for really interesting and difficult parkour where cobbles are thrown in there's been none of that as I said the other day it just feels like Two towns have paid some money. Well, drop a bit of spaghetti on on the map, and the you know presto, that's that's your your parkour for the day without really considering how that would contribute to make a great day's racing. Because you're right to say the finales have been have been great. Some of them interesting. I was just thinking about that roundabout pinch point the other day, but um, up until that point. The race, the, the parkour has hasn't really offered the riders the opportunity to take advantage of of what was in front of them. It just has been riding tempo for hours and hours. And maybe, I mean, this this might be stretching things a bit too far, but but Cavendish and Kettle talking about the the, the chaos and the carnage that's that's involved in in the sprinting stages. 
Possibly the reason for that or a contributing factor is that the peloton are spending four and a half hours riding in a relaxed fashion and then are suddenly have to, you know, having to wake up and race like hell. We're, we're not getting ra- racing incidents, keeping everybody alert and having to react to, to things as we go along. I think, you know, do you ever watch Saturday Kitchen? Whoa! <laughs> so, and and uh, the vast locus of things that you could have come back to me with there, Saturday Kitchen on BBC One of a, of a weekend morning was certainly not one of them. Well, no, I mean, seriously, the other week, Rick Astley was on, OK? And, and it just gets more and more bizarre. I, I, so, someone put some acid, some LSD in this glass of water. Well, I did crack open a beer during the stage, so maybe the dehydration's leached over from, uh, from France. In all seriousness, uh, it's kind of like the 80s. You know, the, the 80s are popular on Saturday Kitchen. Rick Astley was on with his wee guitar singing one of his new songs as well as, you know, his big classics, Never Gonna Give You Up and all that kind of thing. And Have you me, just rickrolled me? <laughs> that's of, what you've just done. You've just rickrolled yeah. this podcast. If I had, I would have sung and that wouldn't have been pleasant. You know, there's one of us who's a singer here. We're both guitarists, <laughs> but only one of us can sing, mate, and it isn't me. Um, but genuinely... The point I'm trying to get to in a very circuitous and, and deeply unfunny <laughs> fashion is that this actually feels like a tour from the 80s. You know, it doesn't, it feels like we've we've praised uh, Christian Prudhomme for, for, you know, what, the last five years about his innovations in the race. Yeah. The bees been trying different things. There have been fascinating diversions, reintroduction of cobbles, which I, I, I think have a place most years, but not every year in the tour. Um, and I think he's almost said this year, actually, I'm going to return to home base. Let's just let's just roll everything back and see if the changes that we've made have been, you know, successful. Because this feels to me like the kind of stage, and you can see it when Greg's talking about it on Eurosport, Greg Lamond. You know, he's extremely comfortable discussing everything about this race because this is what his brain is thinking. This is a Tour de France. It does feel like an 80s race. Um, and I can't remember who was saying it. Actually, it was Sean Weeder, who used to be the press officer for BMC, was saying that back in the day, what used to happen was on stages like Stage 3 and Today, the riders wouldn't even think about starting start racing until the helicopters turned up. <laughs> because, you know, they couldn't afford helicopters to cover the entire stage. So they'd put all along, you know, having a drink, doing whatever they do. And then when they heard the, the beat of the, the, the chopper blades, they'd start racing. And this does feel like an old school race. Now, it's going to change dramatically. Tomorrow we're into the Pyrenees. Suddenly we're in a, a serious situation for three days running, then the rest day, and then all all of the questions about form that follow that. But this has felt far more to me like, you know, those relentlessly dull sprinter stages that we used to get in the first week in the 80s. And we've had some cracking racing, but it's been flashes of cracking racing as opposed to action all the time. You know, and it's it's a 21st century audience. We you know we've all got something verging on. Some kind of attention attention deficit issues as we want to flick around to see, you know, whether the latest episode of Danger Mouse is on, whatever. Um, it's it feels like an old fashioned tour so far. Well, despite John and I's best attempts to keep this show short, <laughs> we've managed to go on at length of it. Several issues, and there's one last thing I want to tackle uh, before we, we speak to Ashley, and that's the troubles at Tinkoff. I talked yesterday about how I thought I saw him look back to see Contador wasn't there, and indeed 
when we got up this morning, there was a photographer who had snapped that very incident. But Roman Kreuziger, denying all knowledge of this, has said, oh, I didn't see Alberto Contador was in trouble. But the, the, the main part of this uh, update is that... Um, he was told, apparently, by uh, his DSs repeatedly to go back and help Alberto mm-hmm. Contador and didn't do so. Now, Sean Yates, speaking to the press today, says that that's been, been dealt with. I mean, personally, I think he should be sent home. I, I'm I, absolutely I, serious about that. I think that's maybe a bit harsh, but I think there's... I mean, I won't go into too much depth in this because it's something that I tackled with Ashley and we'll hear him talk about it. I've got to say, I think I personally was giving Tinko far too much credit yesterday. I said that I thought Alberto had released him because he didn't have form, mm. um, that maybe Kreuzinger was the road captain. Um, and what Ashley was saying, in essence, was talking to Sean Yates. He loves talking to Sean because Sean, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve and he calls a spade an effing shovel. Um and you know what what turned out was it turned out Micah got in the break by accident. He wasn't there on purpose. Uh Kreuziger was supposed to look after Contador. Uh Alberto is genuinely in trouble. He's got a bad leg. And then there were some really telling comments from I think Nicky Sorensen uh, overnight where he said none of the team think Alberto is now in a position to win. Every bin, everyone in the team knows that the team's finishing and that morale is through the floor. I think we're seeing a real crisis point for Tinkov. You know, this isn't smoke and mirrors. This isn't trying to distract your opponents with lies about your form or, you know, uh, disseminate facts in, in a way that you control. This is just a team in absolute crisis because of the muppet that's leaving the sport at the end of this, this year. Um, you know, he pulled the carpet from underneath all of them when he said he was taking his toys away. And I think Oleg Tinkov, he's reaped the benefit of the, the sheer talent and bravado from the likes of Peter Sagan. He's reaped the benefit of the, the Grand Tour, um, you know, savant skills from Alberto Contador, just absolutely incredible skills from Alberto Contador. But he's been a toxic influence in the sport since the day he entered it. And I, for one, will be really glad to see the back of him. I love a lot of the Tinkov riders. I'm a huge fan of Sagan. I'm a huge fan of Contador. But that team is just a mess just now. I, I would agree with that. And before I c- come back on stuff regarding Roman Kreuziger himself, we'll, we'll talk about Oleg Tinkov. I, 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 I wouldn't give Kreuziger a job, I'll tell you that now, before we move away. Right, OK, well, let's do that bit first, and I'll come back to, to, um, to Oleg himself in a moment. Then a lot of people are saying this morning that, that Roman Kreuziger is is justified in riding like that because the team is on the verge of closing and, and Contador is injured. I think that's utter nonsense yeah, because all that. Roman Kreuziger has done is let every DS in the sport know that when it suits him, Kreuziger is prepared to disobey DS orders. Yeah, you know, and you can get away with that if you're Vincenzo Nibali or Alberto Contador. Mm. You, know, you can get away with it if you're Eddie Merckx saying to... You know, or or Freddie Martin saying to their DS, actually stuff it, I'm attacking now because you've got the talent, you've got the cojones to pull it off. If you're a middling a decent GC guy who on a good day might get fifth, then you can't afford to be a prima donna. You have to be a team player as well. And what Kreuziger did, exactly what you said, Scott, he's just said to all of his potential employers, actually, you can't trust me to do what's right for the team. Yeah, and as far as that that comment I made about sending him home, as I say, I'm perfectly serious. Kelly made a good point this morning on Twitter saying that 
uh, David Boucher was sent home by Mark Maddio at the Eneco Tour last year when he ignored, repeatedly ignored orders to support Arnaud Demar. So there is precedent there. And I think that Tinkov should actually be as, as be willing to be as ruthless as as Mark Maddio was in, in the past because I think you need to have a system whereby riders know the penalty for disobeying their DSs so that they're kept in line to do the job that they're actually paid for. But to Oleg Tinkov him, himself, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think what's making it worse is this idea that he's floated uh, regarding if... Peter Sagan gets, you know, I think at the time another two wins, then he'll continue. And indeed, one of the um, American journalists uh, tweeted a, a short series of, of questions and answers that that he put to, to Oleg when he happened upon him today. And he, was, he rounded it off when directly asked about whether he was going to continue. He said, well, anything's possible. And I think this is hugely damaging to mm-hmm. the team because either you say privately to the team or publicly, in fact, it should be publicly, that you're going to stay or you should just stick to what you'd said before. Because all it's doing is putting Oleg at the centre of attention and that means that riders and staff aren't focused on what they should be doing, which is doing their best for each other in the world's biggest bike race. They're focused on this dangling carrot that may or may not be real somewhere off in the middle distance. You know, the hope that Oleg Tinkoff is going to keep them on staff and going to keep this team going. I mean, the sport might need Oleg's money. I've got no problem with that. But I don't think it needs his Stone Age repugnant views, nor does it need a guy who wants to be in the spotlight more than he actually wants to run a team. You talked about how, you know, it was him throwing his toys out the, at the pram. He said that those, almost those words himself, that it was it was his toy and he was finished with it. And he's clearly acting again like a child high on blue Smarties. I mean, he's had more bloody comebacks than Cher. Yeah, and today we were treated while his team collapsed around him with a lovely picture of him taking a shower with a watering can beside the team car. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to. I mean, as much brain bleach as I can possibly buy in bulk mm. is, is required to get that image out of my head. So thanks, whoever it was that posted that on Twitter. And I, I really, I mean, I am, I, I've, I've got a lot of stick for this over the over the recent years. I am a huge Contador fan. And I would love to see a stable situation where Alberto could, you know, go through the, the, the finale of his career in a you know in a situation that was supportive, a team that I could wholeheartedly support. Uh, so it's not about not liking Alberto. It's not about not liking Peter Sagan. This is about one thing and one thing only, and it's about not liking Oleg Tinkov. Just two final things. One you pointed out on Twitter this morning, and another that's just leapt into mind while you were talking there. The first, Alberto Contador only losing 33 seconds on a day like yesterday shows a fair amount of, of courage and, and you know passion for, for what mm. he's, what he's yeah, doing. And, uh, so huge chapeau to him. And the other is, how bloody unlucky is Alberto Contador with the teams? Oh, you think well, back to the situation with Astana in what, 2009 with, with, uh, with Lance and everything that he went through there, everything that he went through with, uh, with Reese, and then ending up in the, the clutches of, uh, of Oleg Tinkov. Poor guy, really, when you think about it. Well, you know what they say, you, can't choose, you can choose your friends and your managers, but you can't choose your family. Um, and from everything that I've heard, um, Alberto's brother is a lovely bloke. We saw him interviewed after Alberto's crash. 
uh, at the start of the, the week, uh, but he doesn't have a reputation as the sharpest negotiator. Now it's time we hand it over to John's conversation with our friend and Eurosport presenter, Ashley House. From a small puddle of increasingly near the south of France, we welcome Ashley House today. I believe it's a bit warm where you are, Chum. <laughs> did you say a small puddle? If you did, then I presume you're referring to my sweat. I, I did indeed. I mean, let's not go. We weren't talking Carlton Kirby, the first time Cav won a stage. You know, we are actually just talking sweat because it's absolutely roasting where you are. Yeah, it really is. Absolutely boiling. 34, 35 degrees. And um, even though it was a relatively easy day on the bike for the riders, when, when they were coming past afterwards, they were absolutely shattered. I mean, Anne Martin was uh, warming down on the rollers just, uh, just in front of where we did the show tonight. And he, I mean, he looked a completely broken man. I know, obviously, things didn't go well for, for us. It's quick step tonight with, uh, with Marcel. But just physically, he looked totally, totally drained. Well, you've got this thing where it's a real challenge for these guys to stay, you know, properly fed and properly hydrated on a normal day. If you add in 35 degree heat, it's a challenge that may actually be beyond human physique. Yeah, <laughs> there's, now there's a road that we're that you're pointing towards here, uh, John. That I thought we're not going to go down. No, no, I just meant it'll take them more time to recover, and it might actually. All, all joking aside, what it might do with such a hard day today is impact upon the performance of people like Dan tomorrow when we hit the Pyrenees. I honestly yeah. wasn't going down the dopage route. I just meant that you know, <laughs> even with a perfect recovery regime, you know, with the, you know the proper warm down, proper recovery drinks. There just may not be enough time to get ready before tomorrow's stage after the you know the heat bath of today yeah to be totally honest that's exactly what i thought when when dan cycle rode past me at the end i just thought i haven't seen i haven't seen gc guys or, or, or guys of that ilk if you like um at the end of a sprint stage be quite so so exhausted since uh, since the world of last year when we had even hotter temperatures but uh, yeah dan looked absolutely knackered and obviously all the dimension data guys uh, who we spoke to and and, uh, and saw afterwards, they were, they were also completely out on their asses. I mean, they really did put in everything today, even though it wasn't the perfect lead-out train for Cav. I mean, there's only one thing to talk about really today, and that is, wow, what a, what a sprinter. Um, you know, what an extraordinary, extraordinary bike rider Mark Cavendish is. And I tell you, I was delighted to see Bernardino absolutely made up for him on the podium. Because he knows, you know, he's a, he's a prickly character, but I think he's come to terms with his place in cycling history, and was was absolutely delighted to acknowledge the fact they, they seemed to have a wee laugh and a, a pat on the back on the podium to acknowledge the fact that Mark had passed him in the the second place in all time tour wins or tour stage oh, wins rather. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good deal. I have I didn't see it to be honest, but um, there was there were some thoughts on the ground that maybe it was going to be a bit frosty, but I'm I'm very pleased to hear that I really am and. Uh, the actual sprint itself today, John, was, uh, was, was so impressive from Cav. I know you guys have quoted what Greg LeMond's been saying, which is obviously his track work has, has increased, has built up his speed again. But one of the other things that Greg has been saying is, is this idea of thinking sprinting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Cav has obviously just got that timing and that tactical nous now. Um, I, can, I was trying to explain soccer football to uh, Greg LeMond last night at the point, uh, after a half time when he asked if, if that was all over um, but um, and I was trying I was comparing it a little bit when you have a, a striker in football who who used to be very very quick Teddy Sheringham is always the example that people uses, uh, use from Manchester United when he got a bit older he was still always there first and there's a yard of pace in your head with, that comes with experience and I think that's what Mark's got 
I think that was really highlighted today with some of the, the post-race interviews we saw in Eurosport um, because we saw Mark Cavendish in a fantastic interview where he talked through the fact it was old school, he was having to surf wheels, you know, it was absolute carnage and he had to, you know, he was determined to get Kittle's wheel but then his plan changed. So, you know, that brain was working all the time. And then in contrast, you know, Mark was clearly on the euphoria of a great win. And by contrast, we saw Marcel Kittle on the roller saying, I don't know why the organisers do this, the sprint trains are useless in this kind of finish. You know, they can't drop you off properly. You just have to find whatever wheel you can. And that might be the difference we saw today is it's not the legs, although Cavs definitely got them. What he's got far more, I think, than any other sprinter in the ones just now is the experience and the ability to adapt and read a race super quickly on the fly. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, how we've seen we've seen Marcel Kissel look like he is without a shadow of a doubt the fastest, strongest straight line sprinter in this world of cycling today over the past, I don't know, 12 months or so. But, but this Tour de France, he hasn't been. And he hasn't been. Why? And I, I think you're absolutely right, John. I think he is tactical now. So I think it's experience. And, uh, and yeah, as Mark said today, back to being old school. He said it was a nightmare out there, a real battlefield. And we saw Marcel Kittle, don't forget, lose his Essex, uh, Essex Quickstep train about, what, just about a K out, a bit less mm-hmm. maybe. And, uh, and I think that would have really mucked up the way he was thinking. Uh, and that's probably why Cav didn't, uh, uh, didn't take his, his wheel either. But one other thing probably to note is how anonymous and Andre Greipel has been in, in this, apart from that one that he just lost. Uh, I mean, he, he was nowhere today, really. Absolutely nowhere. Nobody mentioned him. And he was the guy on the Giro who's tactical sprinting and who we were, we, were, we were praising for having the absolute perfect timing and being able to find the gaps and so on. Yeah, I found an impossible gap one day. He's actually come up with one of my favourite quotes of the entire tour today when he was asked about, you know, what are Lotto Sudal doing wrong? And he said, not winning. Which I think <laughs> just sums it up perfectly. Now, we saw you outside the, the Dimension Data bus uh, with an Eddie Bosenhagen who looked actually, looked like he was barely sure where he was. He looked so dehydrated. I'm, I'm going to yeah. take it as read that the atmosphere beside that bus and inside that bus must have been absolutely sky-high morale today. Uh, I'll be really honest with you, John. It's been sky high every single day. Today, it was very, very quiet. And that's purely because they were all so utterly knackered. There's no other word for it. They were just literally knackered. So, yeah, you're right. Eddie looked all over the place. Bernie Eisel as well. Could hardly speak. Mark Renshaw, Jansen van Rensburg. All of them were sort of looking at me. Please don't ask us to say anything. Please don't ask us to say anything. Because they just couldn't. They just simply couldn't. It's that hot. And I think it was, it was that crazy. Uh, on that, on the run into the sprint, and don't forget as well, the direct energy at twenty-five k out started pushing, uh, pushing the pace so hard off the front. Uh, that I think that really surprised them and took much more out of them than they thought it would. Yeah, and I, I mean, stage three, I was I was very, very vocal in my criticism of the riders. I don't think we can be critical at all today. I think they were cruel and unusual conditions. And actually, we got such a good finale, it made up for the relatively pedestrian earlier part of the stage, given the heat. Yeah, I think it did, didn't it? And, you know, you can't have every single stage being uh, up and down Category 1 and all Category Mountains. It's impossible. Uh, and these stages are necessary. And you're right, today we did. Today we saw what the Tour de France, this sort of Tour de France stage is all about, really. It wasn't excessively stupidly long. Mm-hmm. We saw some fantastic countryside again. We saw some riders uh, in the peloton. Just We saw the tactics of protecting leaders. We were able to analyse that and look at it really closely. And then we saw a really brilliant, flat-out, old school, as Mark said, sprint 
uh, and an old school winner as well, I guess. And I think we'll see him celebrate tonight. I mean, he's, it, it, that's his race over, I think, in terms of, you know, we, we heard very credible uh, rumours that he was going home the other day. He was clearly staying on because he felt he had the form and this stage was in his legs. I'll be really surprised to see him go past the, the Pyrenees, but who knows? Um, moving on to another team, uh, you, you've been talking about what a great interview Sean Yates is because he, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve. He's completely open about what's going on. You know, he doesn't yeah. dis- he doesn't dissemble at all. Uh, and a number of interviews from him today, including some you know, quite colourful language, to be frank, and some of them for <laughs> and some of the outlets. I think we were given too much credit to Tinkoff yesterday saying that Alberto might release the team. It sounds like they just had an absolutely chaotic day. And the, the, the morale, we saw a quote from Nicky Sorensen saying, the team's finished, nobody thinks Alberto can win. You know, the morale's really low. It might it may very well be a team on the, the, you know, the brink of imploding. Yeah, it, it was a, it was an extraordinary uh, it was some extraordinary interviews that Sean gave today. What one of the things that I really liked about Sean's interview that he did with us, he may have said it with other people too, is he said is at one point when asked about what was going on with Roman Kreuziger and Alberto Contador, he said, uh, "Well, it was a mis." Well, I was going to say it was a miscommunication, but no, it wasn't. We all know what should have happened. You know and this, and this was a uh, that is startling honesty. I mean, obviously we all we all know it because we're not stupid, but to hear the DS say that is. It's so it's so refreshing talking to Sean. It really is. And the other thing that uh, that I thought was really interesting was that he said there was no confusion at all. And then he proceeded that uh, he continued to say, "Well, we didn't know whether, whether what to do about Peter's yellow jersey because he probably wasn't going to keep it." Then Rafa Micah found himself in the break by mistake. Then Alberto was there, and then Roman wasn't with him. It seemed to me like they had four things going on, and they, and they just simply didn't know what to do. So I think even though Sean said it wasn't confusion, I think it probably was. No, oh, it sounds like a, a great deal of confusion. I mean, seeing them, you, you talked about seeing Dan Martin looking exhausted for ethics today. Uh, do Tinkov look like they've got a clue what's going on? Uh, no, they really don't. And Alberto got straight in the car as soon as he crossed the line. He, he crossed the line, cycled up to the bus, got in a car and was driven off straight away. Um, I, I, I don't know whether that's to avoid interviews because he was so tired or because they've still got that ludicrous school bus that, uh, <laughs> that um, uh, where apparently they're all changing seats every day. They hope that they're hoping, I was speaking to one of the guys today, they're hoping they're going to get a new bus either tomorrow or the next day. But, and interestingly, this makes a huge difference when you think about what you were talking about recovery. There's no shower on, the, on that bus. So yeah. even though it, it's not a school bus, it's not the kind of bus that you and I would take to go to the library, because obviously you and I would spend a lot of time at the library, uh, it, but it's actually... It's a luxury bus, but there's no shower on it. These things are important for riders. Yeah, and think about, you know, contrast and compare with the Team Sky bus, where, you know, each seat is perfectly suited for each rider. There are proper yeah. cool-down facilities. All of these things, I mean, we laugh at marginal gains, but if you're Alberto Contador having to sit in a, a comfortable bus that's not suited to the recovery after a brutal day like today's heat, or, you know, your Chris Froome and his lieutenants having their every whim pampered with and a proper recovery protocol in place, it's not hard to see where it can start to go wrong. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And uh, I don't know what Tinkoff are going to do now. It's going to be fascinating to find out. It's going to be fascinating to see what all the... GC teams do actually over the next few days Cold Aspan tomorrow, I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah, Pyrenees starts tomorrow and this is where you really start to earn your keep because one of my favourite things about uh, your input in the Giro was the, the day-to-day glances behind the scenes, I remember you told us Chavez had to be helped up the stairs and then, then the next day he cracked you know, that's the yeah. kind of thing where um, keep your eyes open and I'll, I'll, I'll be pressing you for inside information for a bit of insider trading 
<laughs> I'll do exactly that. I absolutely promise you. Well, we'll talk to you tomorrow, Ashley. Uh, get yourself to a swimming pool and get a, you know a large pastis in your hand or something, and try and get some active recovery for your uh, commentator duties. Never mind the cyclists. <laughs> I work for a French television channel. I think there are going to be other other things there, other things that we're going to be doing. I'm watching this evening, but I will definitely do my best to find another swimming pool. <laughs> Thanks, Ash. Talk to you tomorrow, mate. All right, will do. Thanks, guys. So the top 10s for today. Mark Cavendish takes yet another stage at this year's Tour de France and in second place was Marcel Kittel. In third was a very impressive Daniel McClay. In fourth, Alexander Christophe. In fifth, Christophe Laporte. In fifth, Peter Sagan taking up more green jersey points there. In seventh, Dylan Gronwegen. In eighth, Edward Toynes. In ninth, Brian Cocard. And in tenth, Shane Archbold. No change to the general classification after stage six. Greg Van Avermaet still leads Julian Alaphilippe by five minutes and 11 seconds, while Alejandro Valverde sits in third at five minutes and 13. Chris Froome sits in fourth at five minutes and 17. Along with fifth place, Warren Barguil. Sixth place, Nairo Quintana. Seventh place, Pierre Roland. Eighth, Fabio Aru. Ninth, Dan Martin. And rounding out the GC top 10 is TJ Van Garderen. Stage 7 tomorrow runs 162.5 kilometres from Lille-Jordan to Lac de Payol, a route that takes us over the first cat called Aspan and perilously close to the major climbs of the Pyrenees which await the peloton in the days to come. The serious stuff starts now. Uh, we're into the terrain where there is, you know, that, that old cliche, nowhere to hide. Alberto Contador, if he hasn't recovered, will disappear from anywhere near the top of the GC tomorrow. Um, it's going to be a time for the likes of Richie Port to try and make up the losses they've made and a time for you know Bardi and, and Thibaut Pino, the, the French hopes to start coming to the fore in a serious way, trying to make some some leeway into the you know, into getting onto the podium with hopes of the top step and time for Nairo Quintana, movie star and Chris Froome and Sky to, to consolidate their position and start trying to take lumps out of each other as opposed to just distancing the rest of their uh, competitors. I think this is somewhat of a an appetite wetter for, oh, aye, for the Pyrenees. Aye. I mean, it yeah. really is all about the Col d'Aspan tomorrow and it's crested with only seven kilometres or so left to race. And while this stage isn't a, a tough summit finish, I think the key factor in it is the short distance to the finish after the, the Aspan summit, which means that the race won't have enough time to come back together. So if anyone loses contact on the ascent, there's barely any roads left to to get back with you know mad descending skills yeah i mean i, I could easily see a situation where uh, you have nairo quintana um, relying on alejandro valverde to lead him down the finish you know um i could see a Thibaut pino resurgent now that he's con- conquered his fear trying to make a difference in the descent but i think tomorrow as you say it's an appetizer i mean we're moving into the pyrenees rest days on monday uh, tomorrow is the one where, rather than a definitive blow struck, I think we'll we'll get some answers about whether Alberto's leg, uh, whether his shoulders up to it. Uh, we'll see um, how BMC play out. I mean, they've got some comfort. I thought they avoided the front very well today. Actually, mm. you know, we were talking about that yesterday. Uh, we'll see how, if they're capable of playing off the the one two. Um, we'll see. Fabio Aru's up to, you know, it's a day for answers as opposed to, you know, definitive statements tomorrow, I think. Yeah, and and I think that 
tomorrow will be more interesting for for BMC than it, it was today. It was obvious, I think, what they what they were going to do today, and, and completely ignored the race, even with uh, Greg Van Avermaet having the yellow jersey. But tomorrow is a whole different proposition for what they do with that yellow jersey. The rest of the, the peloton will be expecting them to come to the front and do the pacemaking. It's whether they, with TJ Van Garderen and Richie Port as their GC guys, are going to be interested or bullied into doing it uh, when when the race starts going up the Aspan tomorrow. Yeah, fascinating stuff in prospect. I mean, I love the Pyrenees even more than the Alps. Uh, you know, the, the style of climbing is something that I really enjoy watching. And when you've got legendary climbs, you know, with with names like the Col d'Asma, all you can do is, is start to get excited. We've talked about a relatively pedestrian first week. I mean, there's been some brilliant racing and there's been some classic finales, some astonishing scenery. But let's face it, you know, the, the, the shit hits the fan tomorrow and over the weekend. Well, thank you for joining us today as some youngster called Mark Cavendish took a sprint win. You know, I think he might have a future in this sport. Join us again tomorrow as we discuss how the GC guys get on in stage seven for another edition of the VeloCast. Cast.